Well, I have uh, been uh, away from the pulpit for, for the last few weeks and had a good vacation with our family and grateful for everyone who helped uh, while we were away. And we are jumping back into our series on 1 Corinthians. We have slowly been working through uh, this letter, and we have been for several weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are in, of course, what is known as the famous love chapter of 1 Corinthians. And it really is, I think, uh, difficult to overestimate the significance of chapter 13 and its importance to us as Christians. We are, as believers in Christ, first and foremost to be characterized uh, by love. Jesus says in John 13, 35, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, kind of the distinguishing trademark or the way that other people in the world would know that we are Christians is by our love, that we are marked by our love for others. Uh, The world that we live in today, the present culture, we could call it the spirit of the age, whatever you want to call it, it is kind of on a little bit of a love kick right now. And I don't think that it's a genuine love, and we can talk about that later. Nevertheless, it really is hard to go through a single day today without hearing the word love in some form or fashion. And I do think that it is a shame that some Christians have reacted to this by downplaying the necessity of love. Some Christians, as an example, have seen the damage done by, let's say, the social gospel. And they have reacted to that by saying, well, uh, let's not help other people or show love to other people so that we're not confused with them. Uh, Some Christians see the world talking about love a lot, and so they simply say, I'm going to put this off so that no one is confused by whose side I'm on. And I think that is a mistake for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is that it lets the world call the shots about what we are to do. We don't combat worldly love by abandoning love. We combat it with biblical love. We combat the love, uh, the false love of the world, with the true love of Scripture. And so this passage in front of us is a reminder for us today to put on love, not just any kind of a love, but a love that is rooted and grounded and informed by our theology. And so now that I've given a mild rebuke here in our introduction to those who would put off love. I'll also give a mild rebuke to those who would put off theology, and we'll note it this way. You don't know what love is without theology and doctrine. Our love is to be informed by our theology, Because these attributes of love here in 1 Corinthians 13 are doctrinal, they are theological, they are didactic. And furthermore, these attributes of love that we have been looking at and will continue to look at are gospel-centered attributes. Why is that? Because these attributes of love describe to us what the gospel looks like. If you want to look in Scripture and see that God over and over and over again talks about his love in the gospel, and you say, what does love mean? You could look here and see these attributes of love in the gospel explained to us. In the gospel, God was 
patient and kind to us. And we've seen that already here in these attributes of love. Jesus, when he came to this earth, did not envy or boast. And we saw this a few weeks ago. He was not arrogant or rude. He did not insist on his own way, but submitted to the will of the Father. He was not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And so these attributes of love that Paul has been unpacking for us in 1 Corinthians 13 are characteristics of Christ himself and are characteristics of what the gospel actually looks like. And so these are really gospel-centered in that sense. You all know John 3.16, where we read of God's love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, if you want to look at it this way, 1 Corinthians 13 is, in one sense, the unpacking of that one word love in John 3.16. And in another sense, this chapter is unpacking the gospel, evaluating what it looks like from this perspective of divine love. Now, we can add to this that the gospel has effects in the real world. The gospel is not something that we merely look at through a glass display case and say, oh, look at that over there. But the gospel actually impacts us and changes us in real and tangible ways. We looked at this at the 9 o'clock service in terms of Christian sanctification, that God is growing us. What does it look like when the gospel changes us? What happens to a person when they are born again, when they are truly regenerate, when they trust in Christ and and that starts to work on their life? What does that person look like? Well, they become to look more and more like 1 Corinthians 13. This chapter should look like, you should look like this chapter more and more and more each day. The gospel makes us look like this love chapter. And with that, we continue on in our study today, and we are going to look at just three more attributes of love. But in order to kind of remind us of the context of where we're at, I'm going to start reading from 1 Corinthians 13, chapter uh, verse 1, and we'll read up to our present verse, verse 5. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. We are picking up on the phrase today, it does not insist on its own way. And so let's jump right into this. This phrase consists of three words in the Greek. Uh, Literally, the phrase says, seek itself. I'll give you a a list of some ways that other translations will render this phrase. Uh, This phrase that love does not insist on its own way is elsewhere rendered as it does not seek its own. It is not self-seeking. Seeketh not her own. It seeketh not her own things. It does not seek its own benefit. 
It does not demand its own way. Uh, Barnes defines this phrase this way. Its evident meaning is that it is not selfish. It does not seek its own happiness exclusively or mainly. It does not seek its own happiness to the injury of others. And this is not the first time that Paul has used this particular attribute of love here in 1 Corinthians. You may recall from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in verse 24, he said, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Or same chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, but in verse 33, he says, Just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. I'm seeking the advantage of others. I'm seeking the well-being of others. Now, this attribute of love, that is, that love does not insist on its own way, is, I think, rather simple to understand. It probably doesn't need too much explaining here on what it means. What is difficult is actually applying it to our lives. That's the challenge. And perhaps what is actually even most difficult is recognizing it in our lives. Selfishness can look you in the eye and you still don't see it. Uh, Some of you may uh, recall uh, perhaps having an experience in your life where somebody said, that was very selfish of you to do that. And you immediately retorted, no, that wasn't selfish, da-da-da-da-da. And then as you calmed down and upon further reflection, you thought... Yeah, that was kind of selfish of me, wasn't it? Because we don't often recognize it in our own hearts very quickly. And part of the reason for this is uh, because society, there is, of course, the internal influence. We all know that we as sinners are totally depraved, and so we naturally think to our own interests. Uh, But we also are getting this message not only from the heart, but we are getting this message from society around us. Um, society is teaching us to value the self above all else. That is the message that we hear constantly in the culture around us. It is hard to imagine living in a world where a commitment to self is not valued above all, all else. Is that not the heart of Pride Month? It is a commitment to self above all else. Pride Month is about the rejection of an outside authority and the establishment of an authority of the self. I will do what I want, and there is no authority outside of me that can tell me what I ought to do. It all comes back to me and what I want. It is at the heart selfishness. We are called, however, on the other hand, to be unselfish, to not yield to our own selves, to not yield to to self, but to yield to God. And we saw this today at the 9 a.m. service, where we saw that that first base of Christian sanctification is yielding that right to self-determination. As I, if I am going to get to first base to grow in my life as a Christian, first base is God calls the shots, not me. We are not to be selfish. And I would suggest to us that it is rather difficult to overestimate the significance of this one little statement in this list of things that characterize love. Selfishness is at the root of so much evil that we do. In fact, some people suggest that selfishness is the root of every evil thing that we do. 
If you dig down deep enough, uh, I think every sinful act, motivation, and thought stems from selfishness in some form or another, in some way. There is some way in which I am committed to me that has caused me to act in this particular way. In addition to this, it is extremely challenging for us to see or to recognize selfishness in our own hearts. With selfishness as our MO, we can rarely detect, if we're being honest, its influence in our own lives. It's, it's easy to see it in the lives of other people. We all are very skilled at that. We're not very skilled at seeing it in our own hearts. It may be the case that many of us here today have imagined that we have managed to break free of our selfishness. Okay, let me think about it. I'm pretty unselfish. I've done pretty good in this area. And for those of us who imagine that, I think we need to do some more introspection. Every individual who gets married imagines themselves to be a pretty selfless individual. That is before they get married. And then they get married. And if they're honest, if they're not honest, they'll say, boy, that person's more selfish than I thought. (laughs) If they're honest, they will say, boy, I'm a lot more selfish than I thought. And every married person, after they've gone through that for a little while, thinks, I've kind of reached a point where I'm pretty selfless. That is, until they have children. And then when they get to that point, if they're not honest, they say, my children are very unselfish. Well, that is true, but, or my children are very selfish. I'm very selfish. <laughs> and each stage that we go and we realize, oh, another layer has been peeled back. On this topic, uh, John MacArthur has written uh, about this. He says, here is probably the key to everything. The root of evil, the root, the root evil of fallen human nature is wanting to have its own way. Barnes boldly said this, And when all Christians make it their grand object not to seek their own but the good of others, then there will be no want of funds to spread Bibles and tracts, to sustain missionaries, or to establish colleges and schools. There will be no want of men who shall be willing to go to any part of the earth to preach the gospel, and there will be no want of prayer to implore the divine mercy on a ruined and perishing world. Oh, may the time soon come when all the selfishness in the human heart shall be dissolved, and when the whole world shall be embraced in the benevolence of Christians, and the time and talent and wealth of the whole church shall be regarded as consecrated to God and employed and expended under the influence of Christian love. Selfishness is at the root of everything wrong that we do. It is at the root of skipping church, skipping prayer, neglecting hospitality, neglecting benevolence, shirking your responsibilities, and a million other things. And the problem is that our heart is throwing fuel on the fire, and our culture is throwing fuel on the fire. I want to give you an example of the ways that our culture is doing this. And you could probably give almost endless illustrations of this. Um, But I, uh, as I was preparing this message, came across an article on the website psychologytoday.com. 
And this article was entitled, 26 Ways to Love Yourself More. This is the exact opposite direction we need to go, in case you're wondering, okay? But they gave you 20, and I'm going to read three of them here. Uh, Number one was drop self-judgment. Self-compassion means dropping self-judgment every time I notice it. From eating too much chocolate last night, to procrastinating writing my novel this morning, to being envious of a friend this afternoon. It is the act of dropping my story that I am bad, wrong, less than, not spiritual, or not progressing. Okay, drop self-judgment. If you ate too much chocolate, don't worry about it. If you skipped work today, don't worry about it. Don't judge yourself for that. If you let your kids starve, don't worry about it. Don't judge yourself, okay? It's okay. You're enough. All right, that's one. Here's another one. Say yes to yourself. Okay? Uh, This one says this. I love that the word compass is nestled in that word compassion. So is the word passion. In self-compassion, the compass points to yourself. The passion for self-understanding is part of our mission. Self-compassion is self-love, self-empathy, self-mercy, self Compassion is the act of saying yes to yourself, of sending the message, I matter, and of experiencing self-love even when self-loathing has the louder voice. Say yes to yourself. And then the last one I'll look at here is uh, called this, Tame Your Inner Self-Talk. And it says this, Unfortunately, my inner dialogue isn't always kind or accepting. When I catch myself engaging in negative self-talk, I remind myself that I am enough, that I am doing good work, and that I have friends and family who love me. Uh, Christ is enough, actually. This is, the world is catechizing us. And whether it is in something explicit like this, or whether it is in various subtleties, the world is catechizing us. The world is not neutral. And, and, and the, the, the world is not just kind of fun. The world has a direction that it's pointing us in, and it's teaching us to go in that direction. Where do we go to find out what direction we ought to go in? And that is the word. That is scripture. Is, here's how you evaluate these, this 26 ways to love yourself more. What does the Bible say about this? Is this what Scripture says? And in fact, this is actually the opposite of what Scripture says and the opposite of what this particular attribute of love is. This particular attribute of love is saying you ought to be selfless. And then this list is saying you ought to be selfish and think about yourself. And so we need to break free of this influence that's going on, first from our own hearts, second from the world around us. give you an example of maybe how this... uh, can apply to our own individual lives. The husband and father is to be the lead and the prime example of this attribute of love in his home and in his community. The husband and the father keeps his hobbies on a leash. The husband and father disciplines himself to deny his own wants in favor of the needs and wants of his family. The loving husband is a serving husband. And by contrast, 
The husband who serves himself in his home is a husband who does not love his family. Someone uh, once said this about biblical manhood, and I'm paraphrasing this, but he said, your home is not your crash pad, your castle, or your man cave. Your home is a greenhouse where you grow spiritual plants. That is your task, men. It is to be selfless, not to be selfish. A husband who is off with his buddies while there is chaos or disorder at home is a husband who is a derelict, a deserter, a fake, and a sham, and he is unfit to be a husband. As the leader of the home, any sin or disorder or chaos that happens in the home happens on his watch. He may not be responsible for the sin, but he is responsible to deal with the sin. And any father who deals with the sin in his home by leaving with his buddies is a boy in a man's body. Running a house is a lot like running a farm, in perhaps more ways than one. The work is never done. There is, there is always work to be done in the home, and it is continuing and ongoing. Now, likewise, those are some examples of ways that fathers and husbands should not be selfish. But likewise, the wife and mother is to emulate this attribute of love in her sphere of life. According to Titus 2, verses 3 through 5, older women are to instruct younger women to work at home. And according to Proverbs 7, verse 11, the prostitute is described as loud, wayward, and it says that her feet do not stay at home. Now, this does not mean that a woman is not permitted to have employment outside of the home, as we know from Proverbs 31. In that chapter, Proverbs 31, we are told that the excellent wife, among other things, provides food for her household and considers a field and buys it. Okay? But what Proverbs 31 does say, and I think this brings kind of the tension together a little bit here between Titus and this, is in Proverbs 31 and verse 27, it says, She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. What this means is that the woman is called to oversee the domestic sphere of her home. And just like the husband is not to be off playing with his friends when there is work to be done, the woman is not to be, to quote the verse here, eating the bread of idleness when there is work to be done. The woman's work, whether it is in the home or outside the home, is to be for the home. And that is the point of this particular passage. Just like the husband, the wife keeps her hobbies on a leash. A a wife who is off with her friends, while there is chaos or disorder at home, is a wife who is a derelict, a deserter, a fake, and a sham. She is unfit to be a wife. The point here is this. Love calls us to recognize what our responsibilities are and what our commitments are. It is to recognize, to be a loving Christian, is to recognize that other people have needs and we are to care for those needs above our own. 
If I want to go out with my friends, but there is disorder in the home, then I put off my selfishness and go to work on addressing those needs there. In other words, love does not insist on its own way. I'm not saying you can't ever go out with your friends. I'm not saying that you can't have hobbies. I'm not saying you can't do things that you want. I'm saying there's a priority to these things, and you evaluate these things through wisdom and understand where do my priorities lie right now. And selflessness teaches us to say, what are the needs of my home? What are the needs of the sphere of influence that God has put me in, and how can I minister there? This is, I think, one of the defining differences between an adult and a child. An adult is a person who has grown up and accepted the fact that he has responsibility and commitment to something outside of himself. Okay, To borrow what one person has said before, that uh, we should be, and he was talking in, the, in terms of biblical manhood as men, but I think this applies to everyone, men should be eating commitment for breakfast. Okay, We ought to be committed folks, not passive, being ruled by our desires. This is called selflessness. A child is someone who has failed to recognize any need to commit to anything outside of his own desires and interests. And many adults are really children in adult bodies. We are called, in this text, to not insist on our own way. Wherever that is applying in your particular sphere of life, uh, apply it there. You are to be selfless. That's the first attribute of love for today. Second one is this. Love is not irritable. Uh, This is the Greek word paraxuno, and it means this. To cause a state of inward arousal. This is the word irritable. To cause a state of inward arousal, urge on, stimulate, especially to provoke to wrath or irritate. This word appears twice in the New Testament, and of course, the first is here in our present text. The second is Acts 17 and verse 16, where it is translated as provoked. Here it's irritable, and then in Acts it's provoked. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Okay, so you can see that the word is not always used necessarily in a bad sense. It's you're provoked, you're stirred up, or in the Corinthians text, you're stirred up to be irritable or to be angry. Uh, Another lexicon defines the word this way. The verb means to spur, to stir to anger, or if it's in the passive voice, to be provoked or incensed. Now, uh, this does break it down to say whether the verb is in the active voice or the passive voice. And in our First Corinthians text, it is in the passive voice, the passive verb. So it carries more of this latter idea of to be provoked or to be incensed. What this means that this verb is in the passive, uh, to, to, to simplify this, is that Something outside of you is doing the provoking. Okay, so when it says that love is not irritable, passive verb, it means that something else outside of you is doing the irritation, and you are permitting that irritation to take place. 
You're responding to that irritation. Um, This is the sin of anger. It means that you have a short fuse. Uh, One more definition here. The verb refers to an inward state of arousal and can have a positive sense, as we saw with Paul there, to stimulate or a negative sense to irritate. As a passive verb, again, what it is here in this text, it means to be irritated. And what is telling here, particularly about the fact that this verb is in the passive voice, is that the angry person is not in the driver's seat. The, the irritable person or the angry person is reactionary. That means that they are provoked from the outside. Here's what it means. It means the angry person has no self-control. Someone else on the outside can stimulate you to anger, and they are in control. And this is really the key, or one of the keys in understanding the sin of anger. And part of the issue with the sin of anger is that you are not in control, even if you think that you are. So let's say that you get angry every time somebody insults you. Okay? And, and any person in this room could insult you, and you would fly into a rage or get angry or irritated or whatever. Here's what you, here's what you are doing. You, you are handing a leash to every member of the human race, and you are saying, you have permission and authority to drive me wherever you want to drive me. Because passive verb, someone else is doing the irritating, and you're reacting, you're responding, you're flying into a temper, or you're flying into a rage, or whatever it is. You have no control of yourself. I was in, uh, when I was in high school, there was a classmate um, that I had, and there was a certain name that he did not like to be called, and uh, my fellow classmates discovered this. And uh, this wasn't, he didn't just get annoyed by this name. Uh, he would, and I still to this day don't know why, if there was any significance to it or not, uh, because there wasn't anything special about the name at all. But he, would, he, he literally flew into a rage wherever he was if someone said this particular name. And so, of course, uh, all of, I did not participate in this, okay? <laughs> I'm just telling you. <laughs> all, I would walk down the hallway in my high school, and my classmates had plastered printouts of this name all over the hallway. Uh, And he would go down the hallway and rip these down and be yelling and screaming and all of this kind of stuff going on. It didn't matter if he was in a classroom. It didn't matter where he was. If someone said this name, he was off his rocker. And one of the lessons from this particular uh, experience is that he was not in control. They were. So if they said, I want him to get angry, here's all I have to do. And they could flip the switch. And in that moment, they, he was on the leash and they were driving him. That's what this word irritable means. Okay, Whether, whether you go to that extreme or not is kind of irrelevant. Uh, but it, but it means that you have given control of your life to somebody else, and now they are in the driver's seat and you are not. Love is not irritable. 
Love says, okay, it's, it's like water off a duck's back. Okay, you insulted me, and that's fine. I, I, I'm okay with that. You are not to be, and I think this is the key here, you are not to be reactionary. You are to be in control of yourself. You are to keep your cool. On this attribute of love, John MacArthur writes, it does no good to protest. I lose my temper a lot, but it's all over in a few minutes. So is a nuclear bomb. A great deal of damage can be done in a very short time. Temper is always destructive, and even small temper bombs can leave much hurt and damage, especially when they explode on a regular basis. Lovelessness is the cause of temper, and love is the only cure. If you are an angry person, you are not a loving person, according to 1 Corinthians 13. John Calvin says that love is a bridle to repress or to restrain quarrels. Love is a bridle that restrains that anger and that quarreling. And of course, the Bible uh, talks about this, and we can go to a lot of verses. But in addition to where we are now, we could look simply at Proverbs 19.11, where we read this. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. In other words, you see the, the, the verse there? People who are slow to anger have what? Good sense. Okay? So the corollary is true. People who are not slow to anger don't have good sense. And what's the biblical word for a person who doesn't have good sense? A fool. So people who get angry, people who are irritable, are fools. They're foolish. They don't have good sense. They're not wise or discerning. That's the second attribute of love that we're looking at today. Number three. Love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. Uh, I'm going to put up a couple different Bible translations here on this word. This is actually, um, this is two Greek words. It's not one word. Um, the ESV is translated as resentful, made it one word. Uh, but here's how some other translations have, have put it. To say that love is not resentful, other translations say love does not keep a record of wrongs. Uh, love does not take into account a wrong. Love thinketh no evil. Love does not keep an account of a wrong. Um, the, the first Greek word is the word which means to count or to reckon. And the second Greek word is the word for evil. And so put them together, and it means that love does not count or reckon something that's an evil thing. So what does it mean that love does not keep an account of evil, love does not count evil, does not consider? Here's what it means. It means that you do not keep a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet of all of the wrongs other people have done to you. 
Okay? It means that you're not cataloging the things that people have done. Um, I hope that none of us have developed this skill of cataloging sins that others have done against us, but there are people who have and actually have a really good memory at this. And so all of a sudden, maybe a husband and wife getting into a quarrel or someone else getting into a quarrel, and all of a sudden it's like they are an expert archaeologist and they have preserved all of the remnants of everything that you have ever done in the past. And you remember when you did this? And you remember when you did this? You remember when you did this? You remember when you did this? And this? And this? And this? And you did this? And back in 1975, you did da 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 Microsoft Excel spreadsheet, cataloging the wrongs, okay? This person who does this, who logs every infraction, and by the way, I've seen people do this before, where they have logged the infraction, and then they release it all in what Have you ever seen somebody do this? Where they've logged for years, and then all of a sudden... The, the, the cap comes off, okay, and carnage is going everywhere, and it's like this whole lit. This, anyone here ever done that before? We kept a, kept a, a record of wrongs. The resentful person, or the person who keeps a record of wrong, is a bitter person and a person who does not forgive other people. Do you talk about what others have done to hurt you? Do you do that on a regular basis? Have you ever sat down with that person? Have you ever sat down with a bitter person? Okay. You sit down and you innocently thought you were just going to get coffee and talk about the weather. Okay. And all of a sudden, my mom, when I was a kid, da 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 da, and my coworkers, da 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 da, da and then my boss, da 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 da, and my friends at church, da 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 da, and it's like, you must be perfect, and everyone else is doing all these wrong. Ever have you sat down with this person? This is a bitter person. They don't they don't see this, I don't think, but that's a bitter person. So one of the foundational questions that I ask um, when I'm when I'm doing premarital counseling. Uh, and, and those of you maybe that I've done this with you will remember this question. But one of the foundational questions that I ask every time that I do this is I ask this question, is there anybody in your life, anyone at all, that if they came up to you right now and said, I am sorry that I did this to you, will you forgive me? If you have any hesitation to forgive that person, is, is there anyone that, 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 that you would hesitate to forgive? I don't care who it is, don't care what they did to you. If the answer is yes, there is someone that I don't know if I could forgive or I'd have to think about forgiving, I would hesitate to forgive, then I go down a whole rabbit trail about bitterness and a lack of forgiveness, because what will happen is if you go into marriage as a bitter person, that will affect your spouse. If you don't, get, if you don't deal with it, 
If you don't deal with bitterness or lack of forgiveness or this sin of resenting other people, you will stain every person you touch. And again, you've, you've sat down with that person at the coffee shop and you know that carnage is flying all over the place, even if they can't recognize that. And so my encouragement in this particular context in premarital counseling is deal with that now and don't be a bitter person going into marriage because it's going to make it a miserable ride if you don't deal with that. I think that the English word resentful does a good job of capturing the Greek because the English word, so, so, so the Greek is that you're not keeping a record of wrong. And the English word for this is to be resentful. And the English word means this, feeling or expressing bitterness or indignation. To be resentful is to have this bitterness, this indignation, this saying, they did this to me, they did this, she did this, he did this. They did. That's what being resentful is. Love is not this way. One writer, I think, captures this idea very well, and he says that this idea of keeping a record of wrong is nursing the memory of an injury. Nursing the memory of an injury. That puts things in a different light. If someone has injured us, as Christians, we are to do what? Forgive them. We are to forgive them. And the opposite of that is being bitter, or as this writer is saying, nursing the memory of that injury. You're constantly bringing it back up and thinking about it, or imagining what you could do to get back at them, so on and so forth. Love does not do that. Instead, love suffers from short-term and long-term memory loss. It quickly forgets the ways that others have harmed you. It gives no thought to it. Someone brings it up, it's like, oh, I guess I'd forgotten about that. I, I wasn't... I didn't give that any thought. MacArthur notes this, Resentment is careful to keep books, which it reads and rereads, hoping for a chance to get even. Love keeps no books because it has no place for resentment or grudges. Chrysostom observed that a wrong done against love is like a spark that falls into the sea and is quenched. Love quenches wrongs rather than records them. It does not cultivate memories out of evils. Someone does something wrong to you, and you quench it. That spark could light a whole forest fire, or it could just be put out in the ocean. These are the three attributes of love in our passage today. Let me ask this question are you not grateful that these attributes of love were displayed by Jesus Christ? We started off by saying these are attributes of the gospel and these are attributes of Christ. Jesus did not insist on his own way. What did he do? He yielded to the Father. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but thy will be done. He yielded to the Father and thus secured eternal redemption for us. Jesus was also, to look at today's text, not irritable or resentful. He, was, he had self-control. He was in control of himself, and he was not resentful. What did he do on the cross when he was being killed? Father, forgive them. He was not being uh, resentful. 
And thus we are to live in the same way. Do you remember this morning at 9 a.m. at our uh, study on sanctification? We said the final or the ultimate goal in sanctification is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. These attributes of love, it, it's not as if God were thinking, okay, what, I've got to keep them busy down there. Um, uh, don't be resentful, I guess. You could pick that one. It's not as if it's random in some way. The, these attributes flow from the divine character. We are to be like Christ. And again, because of that, this is theologically informed. And so really the call today in application is, is quite simple. It's simply to repent, to repent of, lo- of loving yourself or living for yourself, to repent of being irritable and angry, to repent of being resentful or bitter. And where you go to get strength for this is where? It's in the gospel. And again, I'm sorry that I keep referring to the 9 a.m., but there's a lot that overlaps today. We said that sanctification is not about lifting yourself up by your bootstraps, okay? The source of our help is the Lord. And so this is not a go-home-and-try-harder message. This is a yield-to-Christ message. And it's also a worship-Christ message because he did this perfectly for you on the cross. The strength to do this is in the gospel. It is in Christ. It is in humility. It is in asking him for help. It is running to him. And so let us do that today. If you don't know Christ, in other words, if you're not regenerated or you have not trusted in Christ as Savior, then you do not have the strength to do this. Uh, This is something that lies outside of yourself, and the call for you today is to repent and trust in him. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for today, the opportunity that we have to be here, and your grace to us and your love. We pray that you might help us to love you, to honor you, and to glorify you, and to put on this attribute of love that you have described to us in 1 Corinthians 13. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.